This is Nicole Levy, and you're watching the TV Writer Podcast. I want to welcome new primary sponsor, the Blue Cat Screenplay Competition. Blue Cat is now open to submissions for the 2023 competition. The Blue Cat Screenplay Competition has been discovering and developing new storytellers for over 25 years to help new writers get a foothold in the industry. When you submit to Blue Cat, you're guaranteed a thorough read of your script with a written analysis of your submission at no extra fee. BlueCat believes in supporting writers with more than just an opportunity at the cash prizes, but with feedback to guide each entrant to grow and develop. BlueCat winners and finalists often make valuable connections in the industry, which help them begin professional careers. In addition, the five cash prizes total $18,500 this year. Send in your feature screenplay, TV pilot, or short film script when you're ready. The competition's deadline is October 30th, but if you miss it, you can still catch the late deadline on December 11th. This is Gray, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, episode 131 for October 4th, 2022. Well, what is special about October 4th? It happens to be the launch day of the Writer's Room Survival Guide, which I have right here. And you'd think, who would I be interviewing on a day that this book is launched? Why not the author, Nicole Levy? How are you doing, Nicole? Hi, I'm great. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. And and I know I've seen you on a bunch of podcasts. I thank you for coming on this one. Um, honestly, I, I was just saying to my wife today, that I feel like very soon this is going to be in film schools as requir required reading. Um, and the reason I say that is because um, it's it's almost like a, a reference book of the, of the different stages that you go through as a TV writer. It's not just somebody breaking in, but it's when you get to the mid-level, what you should be looking out for. What, when, when you're at a higher level, what you should be looking out for. And um, I know... Uh, I. I actually have a blurb in the introduction or, or not before the introduction of the book. And one of the things I mentioned is that the, there isn't any other book that comes close to um, such a comprehensive look at just the life of a writer as it relates to um, the writer's room. So thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for the invitation. And I love that you mentioned that it feels like a reference book to you. That was uh, very intentional because I wanted it to be the kind of thing where it's a good read, but also like if you're like, what did she say about production? You could just grab it and go straight to that part. Yeah, yeah, very cool. And we, we're going to go all into the book uh, in the second half of the interview. Um, but first, we want to talk about your backstory. Um, actually, I should mention that um, our primary sponsor, our new sponsor for this episode is um, the Blue Cat Screenplay Competition. And um, while on the topic, what are some of the reasons a budding TV writer would want to enter a screenplay competition? Screenplay competitions, and there are so many of them now compared to, I think, when I was like filling out all those applications and submissions 10 years ago. But especially the very big ones, right? Like Blue Cat, like uh, the Final Draft, like Austin Film Festival it's a good way to get your name out there and sometimes lower level representatives are checking to see who's placing. They might be looking for new clients. And it also is a great way to meet other writers. You're, you know, hopefully in a world where we're meeting in person, you get to go to a room together and you can start to build your cohort of writers that you're going to go through your career with. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. Very, very cool. And, uh, and I, I think there's also a validation that comes from it. Um, one of the, th- one of the cool things about blue cat is, um, they give feedback on every single script. So, um, for the small entry fee, you actually have somebody, a professional who's giving feedback on your script. That alone is worth the price of the entry. It is absolutely. And I know I got feedback when I submitted to the Austin Film Festival as well. And it is really helpful because you're hearing from, you know, uh, at the lower levels, the readers who read multiple scripts. So they, mm-hmm. they're coming from it at an angle of comparison. And then if you start to get up into the higher levels, you're getting it from professional working writers, which is pretty great. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Okay, so let's let's talk about your origin story. You grew up in the Mojave Desert. Um, I so did. How did that lead you to writing? <laughs> it led me to writing because I don't know if you've ever been to the Mojave Desert, mm-hmm. but it's about 115 degrees during the summer, mm-hmm. and uh, there's you there's no plane outside. It's 115 degrees, so I played inside with the television on. Mm -hmm. and was addicted to every soap opera on television because Mm -hmm. that's what was on all day and you know acted out tv shows with my barbies and was just obsessed with television and movies because too hot to go outside and i thought all of that meant that i was going to pursue a career in acting which of Mm -hmm. course made my parents want to (laughs) cry please don't do that and it was for multiple reasons it's the old school you know that's not a real job you're not going to be able to support yourself, all that. Mm-hmm. They were also concerned about being, um, you know, a light-skinned black woman coming to Hollywood trying to pursue that goal. At the time, mm-hmm. it was, you know, much less frequent to see people who look like me on television. Yeah. And so they were they were not thrilled. Um, but I was determined. And so I ended up going to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts and studying acting. Mm-hmm. And we had to read... I'm sure that I'm exaggerating this now, mm-hmm. but it felt like a hundred plays. It may not yeah. have been actually a hundred, but it felt like it. Yeah. And in reading all those plays, like I read August Wilson for the first time and I, you know, read classic plays I had never heard of before. And what I realized was that I was really in love with storytelling hmm. and not necessarily performing. Yeah. And that was when I made the pivot into writing full time. Very cool. And you went to USC. Talk about that experience. I did. (laughs) Fight on. I transferred to USC. My parents were really excited because Mm -hmm. real school. Um, But, you know, my dad was uh, retired from the military. My mom worked at, you know, a civil service job. There was no, we're going to put you through USC. And so I had to get a job that at least would keep a roof over my head and take out many, many student loans. Mm-hmm. And so I became a police dispatcher. Wow. And I used to work graveyard shift and then go to school all day. Wow. And I went into USC uh, as an undeclared major because, of course, if you didn't get into film school, you could still get into the school mm-hmm. and then keep trying to get into film school. I could not afford to keep trying to get into film school because right. student loans. <laughs> so yeah. I found out that the English department had a creative writing major. Mm-hmm. And so I became an English major and wrote tons of short stories and, you know, got a really good, solid writing education. Mm-hmm. And then was a little terrified of what happened next. And I heard about the Master of Professional Writing program, which used to be at USC, is no mm-hmm. longer, sadly. And 
uh, T.C. Boyle was one of my uh, last, he was my senior writing professor. Wow. And I went to his office and we had started off on a rough note. Like he savaged the first thing I turned into him. Uh-huh. And, but we got, you know, we found a, we found a, a way to work and I learned and he started to like my writing. And I walked in his office and was like, I'm thinking about applying to MPW. I don't know. And he wrote me a letter of recommendation and said, walk this over and turn wow. in your application. And so I did. And it was a great decision. It really gave me time to work on my craft in a way that I hadn't yet. And mm. um, so terrific program, really grateful to it. And, uh, cool. and, you know, then I spent 10 years beating my head against the Hollywood uh, <laughs> wall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which is which is really good for people here. I mean, I know we say often on this podcast that that the general, I don't know, the the feeling out there is you get a good degree and somebody should just hand you a job. And even a school like USC, I mean, you you hear stories of you know Josh Schwartz, who who actually sold um, something when he was in his junior year at USC. Um, that's not necessarily typical. <laughs> Right. And uh, and it takes a lot of hard work. It takes a lot of hard work. And, you know, especially when you go a little bit in a different path. I have friends who went to the film school and they were able to, you know, land good internships or good entry level sort of positions. But I didn't have the film school connections since I didn't mm -hmm. go there. And so I really kind of had to hustle on my own, you know, and yeah. it just took it took the time it took. Yeah. Well, so what, what did you do in that time? Tell me about your writing process. Um, and uh, and uh, did you join any writing groups? I, I know that you did get into actually more than one writing fellowship, um, the CBS Writers Mentoring Program and NBC's Writers on the Verge. Talk right. about how you applied to those and what you got out of them. Sure. So one thing, and I don't even know if I mentioned this in the book, but um, I actually, the first program that I got deep into the process with uh, was the Disney Writing Fellowship. Oh, okay. And I made it to the last group before they made the final cuts. And uh, I was Christmas shopping when I got the phone call that I didn't make the final, final group. <laughs> and, but I, I look back on that now with gratitude because mm -hmm. I wasn't ready yet. I really was not ready to have the toughness that's required when, you know, someone walks in and gives you notes and there's a lot of red, your script is dripping red and all of that. I wasn't ready yet. I hadn't mm. sort of built up my muscles enough. So I'm, I'm grateful for having gone through the experience, but I also know that I wasn't ready. Mm. And so in the meantime, I was lucky enough. I, I made a living off my degrees. I worked in magazine publishing, and uh, then I became a closed captioner because I could do that on graveyard shift and mm -hmm. take meetings and stuff during the day. Yeah. So um, in that regard, it was great. And it was also like getting another master's degree in television because mm -hmm. I was literally typing every line of dialogue Wow. from, you know, Grey's Anatomy and private practice and uh, brothers and sisters and all, all the ABC shows that had large ensemble casts. Mm -hmm. I was like, <laughs> and um so and i also would have the script so i could see what got cut out i mm. could see you know uh what lines changed different different things so you kind of started to see oh okay this is the decisions they make after the script is written and Very start cool. to get that kind of look into it 
and then you know i i came up at the time when the way in was writing specs mm-hmm. of existing shows so i wrote uh before i finally got my first job 12 specs 12 specs wow 12 specs and so i was just i you know i wrote a lot mm-hmm. when i was frustrated and couldn't write scripts i wrote fanfic i wrote uh-huh. thousands of pages of fanfic oh. It sounds exactly like my daughter. My my daughter's say and, and actually interestingly, she did the same thing. She got into USC, but not the film program. Though in her second year, she was able to transfer in. Right. Um, but she loves fanfic, and she's written like novellas worth of. Yes, me too. And but it's great writing practice, right? Especially because yeah. you sometimes have to write characters you don't like, which is mm-hmm. very good practice for TV writing. Because if the characters on your show, you have to write them. And so you have to learn to do that. Yeah. And um, I was really lucky. I uh, met through a part-time job I had while I was finishing my master's thesis. I had stopped dispatching and was sort of trying to like give myself a break while I wrote my master's project. Mm-hmm. And um, this wonderful writer named Joyce Burdett, who um, was a very successful novelist. She created the TV show Diagnosis Murder. Mm-hmm. Um, she also gave the world Jack Burdett, who happens to be one of my favorite comedy writers. So I'm uh-huh. very grateful to her for that. And we became friends and she became a mentor to me. And she would always sort of check in, see what I was working on. And she tried really genuinely to help me, you know, but nobody wanted unexperienced writers. And it was just, it was a rough time to be trying mm-hmm. to break in. And she, just stayed on top of me. And when I finally, and this is a little jump in the story, but we can go back and cover. When I did finally make the uh, semifinals at the CBS Mm. Writers Mentoring Program, um, and I always tell the story because she deserves that I tell it. She wrote Carol Kirshner and said, you would be crazy if you didn't take Nicole. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, it's just, she's such a wonderful human being that she took the time to do that for me. Mm Very cool. Yeah. You know, it's it it uh, seems very much like um, uh, when I interviewed Sean Ryan, he he had a very similar process. It, and, and it's funny, everybody looks at Sean Ryan like he's this uh, mega showrunner and, and stuff. But it took him years yes. to develop his craft, years where he, he was writing scripts that weren't getting anywhere. And he had to find ways to improve his his craft. Um, I, I think everybody dreams of landing that staff gig right out of school, but I, I can see that 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 uh, that time is is necessary. It's absolutely necessary, and in fact, I love that you brought Sean up because I went to a panel when I was still kind of trying to break in, mm-hmm. and Sean read a list of every spec he had written. Yeah. And I uh, wrote a blog about why it was important to write specs. And at the end, I talked about how many I had written in comparison. And like, you write them until you don't need them anymore. Yeah. And I will say, I'm, I am the proselytizer of people should still be writing specs. Hmm. If you're trying to break into the business. Not all the time. Not you should write as many specs as you write pilots. Pilots hmm. are the, you know... The thing most people will want to read, mm-hmm. but specs are training you to do the job you actually want to do, which yeah. is write in a showrunner's voice, in a specific tone, in exactly the way that the showrunner writes it, because yeah. that's the job. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. And, and honestly, I, I mean, I think 
hey, approach it like fanfic, but it it's it can be very fun <laughs> to do that. Absolutely. Um, I mean, my my daughter's writing writing pages from Umbrella Academy and Severance. It's like it That's feels it. it feels like she's on those shows and and she writes stuff that that looks like it could have been out of the pages of their scripts and i think even people people do so much of um they they listen to a, a podcast or an interview or panel or or that kind of thing and they hear somebody say something and they think okay they said that i only need pilots so i'm only going to write pilots well how do you know the form if you don't practice with emulating shows like i think it's a, it's a much better tool when you're starting out to get familiar with the form familiar with storytelling how how do you build scenes and and that kind of thing absolutely and look i i always spec shows i loved i never cared what was popular or what someone would be like, oh, you should spec this show. I was like, no, I'm gonna spec a show I love. My career got jump-started by a spec of The Closer, which mm. everyone was like, no one in the business watches that. Yeah. And I was like, I don't care, I love it. I had a great story to tell. And so many people who read it were like, I don't even watch the show, but I had to find out how the story ended. <laughs> and, and that's Very real. Cool. And the yeah. last the last spec I wrote was an episode of Person of Interest, which I loved like a crazy mm. person. Yeah, and I had so much fun writing it. I mean, what do I care that no one ever read it but my manager? Like I yeah. loved it. <laughs> yeah. Very, very cool. Yeah, and, and I I know it can be really tough to write a pilot. I mean, even for established writers. Um, and and expecting somebody who is just starting out to build a whole world build all these characters and and do the toughest thing you can possibly do in such a way that it it represents you well enough to get representation or a job i mean that's a tall order it's a very tall order and and i think that's also part of why you know stopping to do the occasional spec so that you always have one current one it it always forces you to look at structure again to look at mm you know, how you get to an act out. And, and again, firm believer that everyone should be breaking with act outs, even if you're not putting act outs in your script in terms mm -hmm. of writing end of act one, you should still be breaking like you are. Yeah. And because it's gonna give you the best flow of your show. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are people who, they want broadcast money, but they've never tried to write a broadcast act out. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's the whole job, honestly. Like being in broadcast, like, breaking story, finding great character moments, but it's nailing the act out. That is mm. your job. Because yeah. <laughs> you got to get yeah, people to come back. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, even even in feature films, feature films are technically just a two-hour blob, and yet there, there's a lot of, of screenwriters and, and directors that, that still thinking about it in, in the reels. There would be 11-minute reels that would play um, in previously before we delivered the digital files but you would have a canister of 11 minutes worth of film and then they would cut that together with all the other ones and a lot of people to this day still think of every 11 minutes i've got to build to something and then let it go down and then build to that next 11 minutes just so that they have that yes you know flow like that up and down not just a straight line of action yeah it's really important because you want to like you know, raise the stakes and then you want to give your audience a chance to like 
feel it and catch their breath and be upset about what happened and be mad at you because you didn't like why did you do it that way and then Mm -hmm. you know take them on another ride like you you need that or people tune out is my feeling you know especially with as much television as we have now yeah so anyway so you you did those fellowship programs and um tell me about landing your first staff gig how did that happen (laughs) so i did the cbs writers mentoring program and then uh, in case I didn't get staffed or anything, I had applied to Writers on the Verge at NBC. Mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to get in and go work over there with Karen Horn's amazing group in and uh, Jen, uh, Jen Grisanti. Mm-hmm. And um, basically I came out of the program like on fire. I got an agent, I got a manager, I had so many general meetings. I was up mm-hmm. for four jobs. Wow. And Every single time, the job, it was like, it's between you and one other person. And <laughs> oh, the no. job went to one other person every oh, my. single time. Oh, wow. Um, and, it, you know, it was just the way it broke. And there was the the week where it was going into Memorial Day. And so it was like, didn't get a job, didn't get a job. Friday, didn't get a job, like heartbroken. And so I let myself cry for 24 hours. <laughs> And then I was like, okay, what else can you do? And I applied to the Disney Fellowship, which was still taking applications. Mm -hmm. And I submitted to the Austin Film Festival. I ended up once again making it to the finals of the Disney program, but not getting the final cut. Mm -hmm. Um, And I placed that year, I can't remember which year was semifinals and which was finals, but I, I advanced in Austin and went for the first time and it was like a great experience so wow. you know found found some victory from the jaws of defeat <laughs> yeah and um and you know wrote a new pilot and that was what i could control i could write mm. a new pilot and so the next year i was not getting any meetings and in 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 the aftermath of me getting my first job several of my upper level writer friends were like I didn't want to tell you that like nobody was meeting with lower levels and I was so worried you were going to freak out, but like, oh, no. I was like we kept our fingers crossed for you. Wow. And, um, but I, it, as it turned out, what happened was Ken Sanzel, who was running Ironside had asked to read, you know, staff writers that the uh, writers on the verge program had. Hmm. And, the studio, I knew all the people at the studio who had covered the show because I had been through the program or had meetings with them the year before. Uh, my mentor from the program was the development executive. Mm-hmm. And then um, every so everyone was like, yeah, if you like Nicole, you can have her. And so <laughs> I ended up doing a Skype interview because Ken was still in New York. Yeah. And, it, you know, I thought it went really well, but whoever knows. And he was like, okay, well, you know, it'll be a few days and then I'll make my decision. And I was like, okay, great. Thanks for the opportunity. And I went off to have a lunch date with a friend of mine. And typically I try when I'm out with my friends not to have my phone out. Mm-hmm. And so we were wrapping up and I pulled out my phone and there were like 17 texts <laughs> or missed calls. And I was like, well, this is either really good or real bad. Uh-huh. And it was real good, and it was the wow. offer for my first job. Very, very cool. So talk about that first room experience. I mean, you had waited a long time for that. Yes. Um, what was that like? 
Uh, I had definitely waited a long time for it and trained really hard for it, I thought. And then, of course, my first room was one of the unusual ones that mm. wasn't a room. Oh, wow. It was uh, Ken preferred to work in like one-on-one -on -one with writers and not have a room full-time. Mm. And so we had a writer's hallway. And so what I learned very quickly was that the skills I had learned, right, to, to succeed in a writer's room were the same skills, I just had to use them differently. So mm. I had to come in in the morning and stop by everybody's office and be like, hey, right. how was your night? Like, do you need any help with anything? Mm -hmm. And build my relationships that way because we weren't sitting around a table all day. And, um, you know, it, it helped that, A, I got very lucky that someone I knew was on staff, so I had mm. like a, a cushion. But also what Ken did that, I encourage every showrunner I know to do is he made it very clear that he had hired us, the two staff writers, because he believed in us. And mm. so the mandate was help the staff writers. <laughs> like, don't leave yeah. them in their floundering. <laughs> yeah. And they did. And I'm still in touch with everybody from that staff. It was a great wow. group of people. And, you know, they really wanted us to succeed. And I yeah. learned a ton from them, and I'm really grateful for it. Very, very cool. Yeah, you know what? The showrunner has so much power in that way. It, it's funny because there's some who are like that, and then there are some who are stealing credit from the uh, <laughs> newer writers. And it's like, <clears throat> how how do you how do you reconcile that? Yeah, <laughs> I guess it, that's a lot of what you talk about in your book. Yeah, you know, it's look. There are great showrunners, there are horrible showrunners, and then there's plenty in between. Mm -hmm. And most people, I feel like, fall in the in-between where they're they're pretty solid, they're going to make some mistakes, might have, mm -hmm. like, you know, a couple things that you'd be like, watch out for this if you work for them. But they're yeah. not, you know, you're not reporting them to HR about stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's there's levels of it, right? So... One thing I say in the book that's super important is everybody has bad days. So even the showrunner that you adore mm. might come in the door one day and just be like, what are, what are you all doing in here? I asked <laughs> you to do this and I get this in return. Like, what mm. what are you doing with your time? And you'll be like, oh, we're in trouble. And yeah. you let them have their moment and then they go away and then you redo the work because you will probably be tasked with redoing the work. Mm -hmm. And the next day, everything's fine. And you don't know what precipitated that, right? They could have had a horrible call with the network. They could be fighting with their wife. Like, you just don't know. Mm. And so they're having a bad day. And you're going to have bad days. And you hope people have grace for you. Yeah. The, the behavior that starts to get really difficult, right, is there are showrunners who thrive on chaos. Mm. So they are always looking for a way to cause chaos. Yeah. And some, I think they're not even aware of it. They just, that's what they feel like they're not working if it's not hard. Mm -hmm. And so they're, this is the kind of showrunner who reads 10 pages of a script and throws it out. And so you're all re-breaking it without knowing what he really didn't like about the episode. You just know mm -hmm. he didn't like those 10 pages. Right? <laughs> yeah. um, the kind of person who doesn't stick to a calendar who you know you're in prep and you still haven't even finished the outline for the episode nightmare mm -hmm. um 
the kind of person who thinks that people work for them 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and don't respect that writers have lives and families mm. and things they need to take care of. Um, you know, we all get paid really well so that when you do have to work through a weekend, you're like, yeah, that's what the money's for. It's mm. not supposed to be all the time. Yeah. Well, like, you know what? I unfortunately have had a couple experiences with a pretty toxic work environment. And it's then that I reminded myself that at least the mercy is the contracts are fairly short. Yes. Yes. And that's one of the keys if you're in a bad situation. And if you are in one of those notorious situations, right? We've all read about mm -hmm. them now because they've become very public where you have someone who is truly abusive in the room. Mm -hmm. I, I would encourage everyone to try to find a way to report if they can do it and feel safe. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a hard decision. I mean, I'm not sure I would have been able to do it when I was a, a newer writer and, you know, trying to get my bones in. Like, it's scary because you are mm. afraid you'll never work again. If you if you are too intimidated to report, though, you have to talk to someone. If it's not someone on your show, if there's no one on your show you can trust about to talk to about the behavior, that's when you use the network of writers that you've built up. That's when you call the Writers Guild and say, I don't want you to do anything. I just need to talk to someone about what my options are here. Mm. And they will do that. They're not allowed to file a complaint or do anything without your okay. But they mm. will give you advice. And yeah. if you feel like I I don't want to do any, I don't want to report, I just want to tough it out and get through it, that's a perfectly acceptable choice. But tell your reps, hey, this is what's going on. I mm -hmm. don't want you to talk to anybody. I just right. want you to know that I need to be done as soon as the season's over. So yeah. we're going to like be prepared to take me out for staffing. And, and that's a perfectly valid choice if you, but if you feel really, truly in danger, like there have been people who've literally put hands on their employees, that's wow. not okay. And, and if you are afraid to report, you've got to at least talk to someone who can then step into that person and say, I, you can't put your hands on our employees. That's not okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, th thankfully these are hopefully few and far between, um, it's not every show that this happens, but when it does, you need to be ready. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I definitely think the business is trying to weed all those folks out. We all know there's still some out there. Mm. Um, and I, another thing I would say is don't don't be afraid that that tyrannical showrunner is going to fire you because everyone in town knows who those showrunners are and mm. they all know everyone gets fired off those shows. Like, it happens. So... Yeah. It's no skin off you. Everyone's going to just be like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can think of a few pretty big shows where, I mean, every writer I talked to was like, I got fired, and so did that person, and so did that person, and so yes. did that person. Yeah, it's easy to tell. It's like if you yeah. go look at the credits and you're like, oh, all these writers were only there for one season. We all know what that means. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, back, back to um, your story. I, I know we want to get to the book real quick, but um, just s signposts of, I mean, you've written on Allegiance, Mysteries of Laura, Shades of Blue, Cloak and Dagger, Fate, The Wink Saga, SWAT. Uh, you co-wrote the feature, The Banker, which is on Apple TV+. Plus. Um, what are some sort of signposts through that time, things you learned, um, important things yeah. that happened? 
Absolutely. So the first thing, and I think the most important thing is when you're in those staff writer, hopefully only year, in my case, I was a staff writer three times because oh. title repetition's real. Um, I was terrified in the allegiance room, right? Because it was the first real room I had been in. And mm -hmm. I, I, on a break, sent a text to a very good friend of mine and was like, I feel like the dumbest person in this room. And her response was, everyone in that room feels dumb. They're all <laughs> trying to prove they belong there. Wow. Just take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. So like, you, it's, it's all going to be fine. Like, you're not the only person in that room who's scared. You're the one with the least to prove, honestly, because you mm. haven't done it before. So no one expects you to have the best idea. If you have a great idea, they're going to be thrilled. But nobody expects the staff writer to save the day, to save the show, to pitch the greatest episode in the history of television, or to write a perfect script. So take mm. those expectations off yourself. Um, as you start to move up the ladder, you're going to find people who recognize in you what you're great at, what your, your skill set is, right? And I had come from a very... Um, you know, demanding job. I had been in law enforcement. I was a dispatcher. I knew how to command a group of people. And people started to recognize that and be like, you know, can you cover the room? Can you, can you wrangle all this research and then, you know, bring in an expert to talk to us about it? They'll start to rely on you for the things that you display a natural talent for. Mm -hmm. And so that's how you'll start to really stand out, you know, and you get those opportunities by never saying no to things that are easy to do, right? If the showrunner swamped and says, oh my God, I got to write these character bios and, and these sides for casting, offer to do them, hmm. you know, at least just to take the first pass and the showrunner is going to go through it anyway, but they get to start from a, a pages instead of from a blank screen, hmm. which is, well, you know. And, and when you, when you co-wrote that feature, that was with, the showrunner of Allegiance, wasn't it? Yes. Um, so how, how did that happen? So that happened because, you know, especially when you go through the writing programs and also if you read my book, you will see there's a, there's a lot of things that you'll hear about how to make yourself indispensable. Mm -hmm. And I took all those things to heart. So I was one of the first people in. I could never beat John Glennon, but I was there right after him <laughs> if I could be. Um, you know, I was one of the last ones out every day. I, if our room shut down because we were having an emergency in New York, I stayed in the office and was always there. And so they came to rely on me as a person who they could come in and be like, Nicole, can you just like bang out a description of what the scene is supposed to be? Cause we can't find the notes and whatever. And I would remember and be like, sure. And just doing whatever you can to help the showrunners and the EPs mm. when their hair is on fire is invaluable. And I built a really solid relationship with all of them, George included. And when George was looking for someone to co-write the banker with him, um, you know, he was reminded by Rashad and John how much they all relied on me. And he asked if I had a feature sample, which I did. And I sent mm -hmm. it to him with no idea why he was asking. <laughs> I mean, I was just like, maybe he just wants to read it. I don't know. Yeah. And the next week he called and pitched the story to me of the banker and asked if I wanted to co-write with him. And it was, you know, an absolute joy. And I'm so wow. grateful for the opportunity. And it's, it's directly leading to my second feature because I'm, I turned, uh, wrote a feature called Spark 
that's mm. about this amazing woman named Claudette Colvin, who, uh, as a 15-year-old girl, refused to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama, nine months before Rosa Parks did. Wow. And so this is kind of the story of why why we don't know her name better. And mm. Anthony Mackie, who is in The Banker, is going to direct it. And so that's how I got pulled into the whole thing was, you know, having worked with Anthony before. So um, it it continues to pay dividends. The hard work continues to pay off. (laughs) That is very, very cool. So at what point did you do the showrunner training program? So I did showrunner training after um, I had come off of Fate. Oh, no, before Fate. Um... Sorry, I just lost my timeline. No, it was when I got back because then we shut down. Our last class got canceled because of the pandemic. So that's what happened. And um, I had uh, ended up developing a show with Carol Mendelson's company. And so I had a pilot that I sold and that at the time was um, uh, had been bought by Charter for their Spectrum Originals. Mm -hmm. And um, so I got to do showrunner training. So at that point, I was a co-EP. And, um, you know, it's, it's such a great program. The interesting thing was I had actually sat through the entire course before. Oh yeah. Because right before I did Allegiance, um, Carol Kirshner, who also runs, co-runs that program, picks someone she knows to do the note taking Mm. for the classes. And so I had taken notes, um, through the entire course once before. And so it was so interesting to be back now as a participant and like, like, oh, I remember when I heard this the first time and I was like, yeah. who would do something like that? And then I was in rooms where I saw people do something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was fascinating to be back in it again. Um, yeah. But it's a great, you know, it's, it's a lot of work for them to put it together. And so mm. it's so hard to get in. Um, but I'm incredibly grateful that I had the chance to do it because it really, it, it not only helps prepare you for the job, there's a lot of things that you just don't think about in terms of the business part of what you're going to have to do. And so Mm -hmm. it helps prepare you for that. But it also, again, it gives you this new cohort of writers who are all at the same level as you. We're all going through the same struggles and we email each other constantly about, Mm. you know, like. Have you ever had someone say this to you? Like, what does this <laughs> note mean? And what, why won't yeah. they let me have writers on set? And we just, you know, are in constant communication with each other. So it's mm. invaluable. Yeah. And I, and I think it bears mentioning that uh, any of those fellowships and programs and even film school in general, um, I think one of the most important things, if not the most important thing, is, is that networking part of it. Um, I mean... 15, 20 years after film school, I was still getting most of my jobs from guys in class who yes. were like, hey, this show came up, that show came up, you, you interested in this, you free. Um, and I mean, it can't be understated how, how critical it is. Not just, like, it, it won't just happen by osmosis. Like, you you have to say, hey, let's exchange emails. Hey, let's, let's get together for a coffee or lunch yeah. um, and make that happen. Yeah, it's a part it's a part of the deal. Like if you want to work in this industry and so you find people that it's genuine with. Like I don't ever encourage people to like try to fake those bonds in order to just have someone that they have a connection to 
you know, even though they don't really like them, there's going to be plenty of people you like. Just stay in touch with those people hmm. and be supportive of them. You know, when uh, when people that I've worked with who have been writers assistants or, you know, script coordinators on the shows that I've been on reach out to me and they're like, hey, I have a staffing opportunity. Can you write an email for me? I'm so thrilled to do it because, mm -hmm. you know, I, everybody works hard. And one of the things uh, I think it was Carol actually in the CBS Writers Program pointed out was that when you're working on a show, even if you're if you're only a staff writer, I will say in quotes because it's a big deal to be a staff mm -hmm. writer. But when you're the staff writer and everybody else has written 10 years of television and 20 years of TV, you feel like, oh. Um, but the writer's assistant and the script coordinator and the writer's PA all want to be you. Mm. They all want to be you. They want that first job for themselves. So remembering that and being kind to them and mentoring them is a great way to start that networking experience. Hmm. Very cool. Well, that is a great segue into your book. Before we talk about that, we're going to have a brief ad break. And when we come back, we're going to talk all about the Writer's Room Survival Guide. DrivingFootage.com provides 360-degree driving plates for film and TV. Over 14,000 clips are available for locations all around Southern California, with over 100 new cities from the U.S. and Canada coming in 2023. A fully equipped camera car with height adjustable rig is available for custom shoots. Visit drivingfootage.com for details. AVGearGuy.com uses state-of-the-art technology to bring new life to old films and videos, like the Lost Betty White series, Pet Set, which they recently restored for its 50th anniversary. They can apply the same technology to your documentary, film and video archive, and family videos. Visit AVGearGuy.com for details. Full disclosure, I do own both of these companies. By supporting them, you help me bring new in-person videos to you. And we're back. And first off, something I like to ask all authors, um, there are a lot of books out there on TV writing, a lot, a lot more than I had in film school and a lot more than there were 10 years ago. Why this book and why now? What, what, was, what was missing in the writing out there? You know, it's interesting because it wasn't a thing I had really thought about. And uh, once again, Carol Kirshner um, mm. brought to my attention that uh, Michael Weesey uh, was looking for someone to write a book in this area. And I was like, that's really, that's a good idea. Someone should mm. do that. And uh, as I say in the book, she was like, you should do that. <laughs> and I was like, no, I don't have time to write a book. That's crazy. Um, but you know, as Carol is wont to do, she would not let up on it. Yeah. And so I spoke with the publishers and I was like, okay, let me try to write a table of contents. And when I sat down, I realized how many things I wished I had known mm. before I learned those lessons, right? How right. much I wish someone had said to me, I know it's going to sound ridiculous, but sit close to the door if you have to go to the bathroom all the time <laughs> so that you're not yeah. disturbing anyone when you get up and go. And it's it's common sense, but you're so nervous that you're not thinking about that when you pick up. Yeah. And uh, and so that's really what what got me started. And it was, I think, a side effect of it that I was really um, happy about is I've taught uh, a few classes since I you know started being a working writer. And I love it. I love teaching. Mm. And I just didn't have time to do it anymore. So this book felt like a way I could sort of teach without being in a classroom. 
Hmm. Well, yeah, and, and, and I think um, from my perspective, there. I mean, I've read probably 40 or 50 books in the area now, and most of the books are about how to write a script, how to build the characters, how to, how, like, it's all about getting you in that in the door. Right. But, I mean, everything I know about the writer's room is that really writing a script isn't what you need on day one or day five or day 50. Absolutely. Um, it, it's, it's about a lot more than that. And, I mean, there's very little out there um, on that. As a matter of fact, even the showrunner training program is something that was brought in because there, there were so few resources for people who were on staff. There was right. lots of resources to get people on the staff, but all of a sudden it's like, okay, let's sink or swim. Yes. No, I think that's really true. And I, I, I'm not sure why that was. Um, mm -hmm. I know, you know, the fellowships helped because so often if you, if you were lucky enough to go through a fellowship that the alumni come back. So you have very experienced people coming back and talking to you, you know, my whole my relationship with Aaron Rashawn Thomas, who I worked with at SWAT, started because he came back to talk to the CBS program. Hmm. You know, plenty of Nichelle Tramble Spellman, same thing. She came back to speak to us and we became friends. So it it you get that if you're in those programs, but if you're not, it really is sort of this mystery box and you have hmm. no way of knowing what happens in there. And even like my very close friends who are not writers were always like but wait, what does that mean? Like when you say that, I don't understand what it means when you say you were breaking a story. Like, what is that? Mm. And I stop and explain it to them. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know that's how you did it. But, you know, people are so fascinated with television, but they don't really understand all the stuff that goes into it. So I think people who want to know how the sausage is made will also enjoy the book because it's very much like, no, this is really what happens. Like on Twitter, you'll see so often a popular show will air and like mm. people will harass the writer whose name is on that episode uh -huh. and it's like no no all of them made the episode like don't yeah. like if you're mad you shouldn't just be mad at nicole you should be like mad at everybody but also don't be mad it's a tv show like mm. so yeah. i mean as a fangirl i have had my share of angry uh watching of television so i get it but like don't be mean to people on twitter it's not okay yeah well, and I and I talk to writer after writer after writer, and usually we talk a lot about that that first staff experience. And for most people, it's it's a it's a shock, it's a rude awakening, it's like totally confused what to do, and and like not knowing anybody else in the room, and not knowing when to speak, and what's expected. And I I thought, I mean, one of the things that, that impressed me about your book was. Um, how detailed a picture you were, you were able to paint about every single level um, from from that um, writer's assistant or or the um, writer's PA onto the staff onto the producer onto when you get on set and and all those different levels talk about because it's one thing to observe it's another to be able to articulate it um, you know I feel like I have always been a student of television and mm -hmm. I think that's just continued in my career right I think I talk in the book about every room is a chance for you to find out how to do your job better mm. and part of that's being an observer and part of it's being like 
oh, I love when we do this. Like, this is a great thought exercise. I'm going to remember this when I run a room. Mm. And to also be like, oh, I am never doing that when I run a room. And like, mean it, mean it. If it, if it upset you, don't do it when you run a room. And mm. that's how you start to find out what your style is. So that as you move up the ranks, when someone makes you a number two on a show, yes, you're going to have a conversation with the showrunner about how they like to do things, but you're going to kind of start to impose your style on the room a little bit because mm. the showrunner is usually not there. So mm. as long as the showrunner is getting what they want, they don't necessarily care how we get there. And I have very much, my style has come from two of my number twos or co-EPs that I mm. kind of amalgamated their styles together. And it's very much how I do things because that it works. It, it, I took everything that was great about both of them and merged them together and it works. Mm. And when you're on set, it's the same thing. It's set is so overwhelming. There's so many people. You're trying desperately to learn everybody's name. You mm. do have to, you have to learn everybody's name. It's yeah. really hard. I'm not going to lie. Make a cheat sheet. Um, one of the shows I was on did this thing that I thought was brilliant and mm. I will do it on my show, which is they just had everybody's ID picture um, mm. with their name and their department so that Very like cool. as you were like you could get it in LA and like as you were flying to set be like studying <laughs> so you'd be like hi Nicole when you saw someone when you got off and like oh yeah. look at you and but it was a great because all people want is to be acknowledged right mm. to know that you know their name you know what they do you know how hard they work and but it's really difficult it, mm. it, it I sort of equate it to the same thing when you're in the room on those early days, you're gonna feel like all everybody's a race car moving around you and you're just standing there and trying to figure out like what where what are we doing? Why why how why is everyone going so fast? I don't understand. It's all happening so fast. And you're gonna find moments to say things that might make it to the board, that might get shut down, it won't matter, but you have to speak. You have to find your opportunities. But mm. that's what it feels like. It's happening so quickly and it's so overwhelming. And then yeah. you'll start to get your feet under you. And then yeah. if you're lucky enough to be on a show where they send you to set, you're going to get to set and it's going to be the same thing. It's going to be like, there's so yeah. many people and I don't remember well, who is, who is I, I supposed to tell that we changed the line. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, but, and, and I mean, that's one of the biggest reasons for, um, when you when you arrive extremely early and stay late um those sort of quieter conversations you have when there's nobody else around and it's you arrive and there's just one other person there um those those go so far they do absolutely i mean look one of my best friends in the world i became friends with because she would come into work early and i would be there and while she made her coffee we would talk and we had not known each other at all. And within a few months, people were like, wait, you guys didn't know each other before the show? <laughs> but like, yeah. we, were, we were each other's people. But like, we wouldn't have known that if we hadn't had those moments to talk, mm -hmm. you know? And it's also your opportunity to ask questions, right? If you, one of the things I recommend is, so at the end of the day, 
you know, you'll usually talk about what you're going to do the next day. And say your number two is like, okay, tomorrow we got to figure out this gap in act three. Like we can't keep ignoring it. Hmm. So when you go home, think about the gap in act three. And yeah. maybe you have an idea. And if you're there uh, with enough time before the room starts in the morning, you can go to a friend that you've made. You can go to your number two and be like, I, I don't know. I think I came up with an idea that might help act three. And pitch it to them ahead of time. Mm. And sometimes they'll be like, no, you should definitely pitch that. Let's see what happens. And sometimes they might be like, oh, I totally get why you went there. I I actually said something similar to the showrunner and they already said no. Fine. But like, it's a way for you to, to try out ideas and to mm. find a way to get your voice heard in the room. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a lot of it is just sheer initiation too. I mean... I often post is in the same building, just walking down and introducing yourself to the editors, um, introduce yourself to the production manager or whoever has their office in that same building. Um, and it, like those, those are the conversations that can result in, in work later. I mean, it, it could be literally an editor. Who, I, I know of cases where an editor went onto a show and recommended a writer that he had worked with before. Yeah. Absolutely. So true story that um, Jim Corey was the line producer on Ironside. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had never been on a TV set before. And uh, Ken was doing some reshoots in downtown and on a weekend. And I was like, hey, is it OK if I come down? Because I, mm. I want to see this. And they were like, you want to come down, kid? Come on <laughs> down. That's great. And so I, I was friends with Ken's assistant. And so he, I was sort of like, tell me where to stand. Like, I don't want to be a moron and do whatever. And Jim Corey teased me about the shoes that I wore. Mm -hmm. And he was right. I did not wear good enough shoes. I never made that mistake on set again. Uh -huh. But, you know, and so we go through our whole thing. You know, he's on set for my episode. And that's when we got canceled. So, you know, it was like good and bad. I did not see Jim Corey again for years and then while i was in kareem zarif's office at marvel tv mm -hmm. trying to get marvel to hire me to write something uh -huh. i mentioned because jim corey was the line producer for every you know marvel show and i said oh you know or i guess he was technically like the head of production and i was like you know i worked with jim corey on iron he was like oh i know he remembers you oh and wow. i was like how great is that that he remembers yeah. me you know and it's like because i took some initiative to ask mm. to learn more and i was always asking questions and i was always like okay but what does it mean when we say this because you know some of the lingo is new to me and i didn't know and i was really concerned about making my days i was really concerned about you know making sure the crew got their breaks and he remembered that about me mm. You know, I'm I'm trying to think back. I I've interviewed a lot of different people, and I and I can't remember a situation where asking too many questions was ever a problem. It, it's absolutely one of the smartest things you can do. I was just telling someone that like sometimes in the room, honestly, like when the room is is struggling, sometimes the best thing you can do is say, "Guys, just for me, can we clarify what exactly?" we're trying to get to on the other side of this because I feel like I've lost track of it a little bit. Hmm. And let someone repeat what the goal is. And sometimes that's all it takes for the room to go, what 
well, okay, so why aren't we talking about this thing? Well, why don't we go back? Mm-hmm. Let's go back three steps to this, and we can just do that, and then we're there. Mm-hmm. Or if someone wants to do a certain kind of story, and you're like, okay, what does that story look like on our show? It's a perfectly valid question. And then people start talking, and you're like, oh, yeah, I think we could do that. Mm. Um, qu- questions are good. And if you don't want to ask the showrunner, which I get, you know, showrunners are busy. And unless you have a showrunner who said, my door is always open, come ask mm. me questions, that's why you have to be building those relationships so you have someone else to ask. I think really good showrunners have upper-level writers who who know without being told that part of their job is to look out for the lower level writers. Yeah. To be the person who answers questions, to, you know, help with script notes, all of that stuff. So yeah. hopefully you have that person in your room. Yeah. Well, now, and that brings up a really, really important point is um, we've been in Zoom rooms for quite a while, and it looks like uh, they're here to stay for another little while, at least in a hybrid way. Um, how do how do you have those water cooler water cooler conversations? How do you meet the editor? How do you how do you replace that kind of interaction? It is challenging. I mean, I definitely will not try to act like it's super easy. Um, you know, on on SWAT, I, we were really lucky that Sean is a big believer in every writer goes to set, every writer goes to post. So because we were in, you know, we were first year of COVID, so it was all Zoom, everything except for being on set. Um, But our editors were on our Zoom, so we would still get to meet the editor who was cutting our Mm. episode. And we would, you know, meet the post-production supervisor. And, like, you still got to understand who all those people were. Plus, in your prep meetings, right, they're usually part of that. And Mm. so you can start to, you know, it's as simple as, oh, once I know that, you know, Gray is going to cut my episode, I'm just going to shoot an email and be like, hey, here's my email, here's my cell. If you need anything from me that you're not getting, let me know. Mm. So simple. That... Oh, boy. As, speaking as an editor, um, when producers take the time to do that, it, it, it's extremely helpful. It's, it's, I think it's so important because, right, if you're on a show that requires a, a set report, they're all different, right? No, no two shows I've been on have done set reports the same way. So mm-hmm. if you do a set report that's more just to your showrunner to be like, yeah, number one was a little moody today, but we got through. Um, I'm a little bit worried about this scene on Thursday because we heard some complaint, whatever. And you're not really talking about the shots. That's definitely where you want to say to your editor, like, hey, like, if I have some favorite takes, do you want me to just email you what they are so you have that for comparison to the director select? Like, just open the conversation. They might say, mm. no, I'll be fine with director selects. Great. Okay. But you ask the question. Mm. And Very if you, cool. And usually if you're doing a report where you're, you are required to say, like, I love this shot, whatever, your editor's copied on that. Um, so, you know, know their name, address them by name. Um, say thank you like all those things are very important (laughs) and it's that with everybody on your crew you know please and thank you and I really appreciate it are such incredibly valuable words yeah oh boy Um, I I was on one remote show um, that was particularly toxic and one of the things that told me it was toxic was I went back in the communication I had had with a couple of the people above me 
And in six weeks, they hadn't said one thing that was positive. And it emphasized for me just how much of a difference it makes when you can say something positive, when you can say something constructive, when you can build up. And sometimes we forget to do that, but it is really important. It's really important. And again, especially when you're not having face-to-face communication, you know, it's, mm. it's more important than ever. And then in terms of, of, you know, with your writer's room, again, hopefully you have somebody who's reaching out and saying like, hey, I'm here if you have questions, if you want to talk about anything, like you've got me. And, you know, different rooms handle it differently. The last room I was in, we ended up with this practice that I thought was incredibly invaluable, which is we did Thursday morning coffee hour. Mm. And so our first hour every Thursday, we would all just, you know, be there. And like, sometimes it was chitter chatter over the news. Um, One of the writers was great at having like fun questions to throw out and be like, Mm -hmm. you know, like, what's your favorite memory from childhood? And we would all answer it. And you get to learn so much about the people in your room. And you don't get that stuff the same way because in a in an in-person room, right, there's always mm. chit-chat. There's the, you know, the 10 minutes in the morning, the 10 minutes ramping back up from lunch, the the last 30 minutes where we're pretending we're still working, but we're all thinking about when, when <laughs> we get to go home. Yeah. And like you get those fun stories and interactions, but on a Zoom room, it's usually so much more all business mm. because Zoom is so taxing. It's just sort of like you need you need to find ways to build that community in the room, and mm. hopefully that's important to the showrunner, and they're finding a way to help foster that. And if not, again, someone in the room needs to just be. I'm the room mom. I've been the room mom since I was a staff writer. Mm-hmm. I've been bringing cookies in to cheer people up since I was a staff writer. Wow. And so I am very much the person who's like, y'all, look at this ridiculous news story I saw today, just to get people talking. Mm. Very, very smart, actually. Um, the, and the thing that people don't think about, I mean, uh, there. I mean, whatever your specialty is, if you bring it to the room, it, it can help so much. I know one, one writer who... Their thing is comic books, so they became an encyclopedia of comic books. And um, there, there's a certain style of show where they want at least one on staff who is like that. And so she just keeps on, keeps on getting hired and hired and hired because of that specialty that she brings to the table. And I, I know that anybody who brings, you know, cupcakes or or whatever, everybody loves them. <laughs> And and if you want to get liked, why not do something like that? Yeah, and it's like I I mean baking was my fallback, right? If the writing mm-hmm. hadn't worked out, I'd have a bakery somewhere, and so it's a way to do something I love that makes people happy, and it's very genuine, and so mm-hmm. I love to do it, and um and I am sort of that you know person who's like, hey, we're all here together, let's make it fun, so. Mm-hmm. That comes naturally to me. And that's not going to come naturally to everybody else, but it's like, okay, what's my thing? Like, Hmm. you know, if you're the person who can just always tell a joke at exactly the right minute, that is an incredibly valuable skill. Hmm. Because sometimes the room gets real tense and then someone comes in with the like, well, I think I need a glass of vodka right now. What about you? And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, I could use some vodka right now. (laughs) Yeah. When it takes being an observer, too, I mean, people will drop little comments about things they like or don't like. And if you pay attention, gradually you can build up um, 
a little bit of roller, a little bit of a rolodex of, hey, I know this person is into this thing. If I happen to see it in the news, they might be interested. Um, and I mean, they, it's you're not just completely lost when you start. Yeah, it's it's just, you know, it, it's just being open, really. It's sort of like stay open to the mood of the room, stay open to if you're feeling like maybe you need a break, everyone else is probably feeling like maybe you need a break, and it's perfectly mm -hmm. fine to be like, like if you're on a Zoom and it's like, hey, can we take 10 minutes for a bathroom break? You can say it. It doesn't matter what level you are. Hmm. Well, in, in, I know we can't, we don't have time to go through every single thing in the book. I mean, you, you do deep dives into everything from lunch to the hierarchy in the room, etiquette of the room, when to speak, how to speak, dealing with bullies. We talked about that a little bit, different room styles. Um, and definitely I, I, I urge people to buy the book and, and do that deep dive. Um, but talk about, uh, they, uh, the, one of the things I, I love that you covered in your book is sort of um, if you are f in a minority or disabled or there's some kind of, of um, challenge in, in that area um, or you're in a situation where uh, things just aren't working with the showrunner, um, mm -hmm. talk, talk about those situations and, and uh, what you can do about it. Sure. I mean, uh, you know, a reality of so many of the diversity and, uh, and inclusion efforts is, you know, part of the way to get historically underrepresented writers into rooms is to say, like, if you're going to write these, you know, characters from this black Latin neighborhood, you need to have writers who look like that. Or mm -hmm. if you're going to write a disabled character, you should have a disabled writer in the room. And which is great because it means people are getting opportunity, but it also puts your identity front and center in mm. the room. And a, a good showrunner is going to make that safe for you, right? A good showrunner is going to make it clear to you, look, this is an important part of the room. I don't expect, like, that's not the only thing you're allowed to pitch on, you know, like, mm. I, br I brought you here to hear your voice. So when you want to pitch, pitch, like, you are part of this room. Um, but there will be people who will find fault with that, right? Who think you're only there because you're the guy in the wheelchair or you're the, you know, non-binary human being who is supposed to represent all the, like, mm -hmm. different sexual orientations in the show. And what the negative thing that can happen with that is, so say I'm in a room and we're pitching sto a story about a black woman who grew up in Queens. Mm -hmm. It's a very specific background. I know enough people from New York to know that, black mm -hmm. or white, but definitely if you are a black woman from Queens. And everyone's gonna turn to me and be like, so Nicole, what, what, what about it? <laughs> and yeah. what I have learned is to say, well, that's very different from my experience, but I can do some research on it and I'll bring it into the room. Hmm. Because I cannot speak for every black woman in the world. I can't even speak for every black woman in California. So I definitely can't speak for every black woman in the world. And and you need to be able to say that. You know, um, I've had friends who've been very put on the spot by those things. And, and it's hard. And it's a little bit scary. Hmm. And 
another thing I think that's really important for people to remember is even if your identity is part of why you got the job, you are only required to share the stories you feel comfortable sharing. Hmm. Sometimes you think you're willing to tell every story and someone brings up, you know, for me, potentially, you know, if someone brought up a story about a parent passing away, I lost my father several years ago. I might think I'm perfectly willing to talk about that. And then I get ready to talk about it. And something inside me is like, don't do it because you're going to break down crying in this room. Don't do it. Hmm. Then I don't share that story. Now, I might take a pause and then come back and say, well, you know, I knew someone who had this <laughs> happen to them and, yeah. and distance it from yourself so that it's safer to talk about. But you do not have to cut your veins open and bleed all over the room for mm. the sake of the show. That's not healthy contribution to the room. That's doing damage to yourself. Well, so, um, that actually is a great segue to another thing you talked about in the book was, was keeping yourself emotionally and mentally healthy through all of this. Um, talk about that side of navigating your life as a, as a writer. Yeah, when you first start out, you will feel like you're so grateful to finally get an opportunity and you it's 24-7. I'm going to 24-7, I'm going to be in it. I'm going to be in it. No, don't do that. Because first of all, you're going to burn yourself out very quickly. And part of what will give you things to write about is living your life, right? Like, um uh phil rosenthal always used to tell the story about like he would make his writers go home on everybody loves raymond right he would be like mm. no go home i need your stories go home oh, yeah. and it's like that's true no matter what right even if you're not writing a family comedy and that's the where the richness comes in is your experience so i will say like when you get your first script you're gonna want to work on this script every waking hour that you have but you might get on script when your best friend is supposed to be getting married. Newsflash. Yeah. Take the computer with you. <laughs> work on the script on the plane. Work on the script in the hotel room. Go to your friend's wedding and stay at the reception a little while and then be like, I got to sneak out. I got to work. You will regret forever not going to something that's that important to you. Mm. So you got to find a way to make it work. And it's, it's essential training for your career as it rises because the demands on you only get greater. It yeah. feels like once you get good at it, it should be easier. But once you get good at it, people want you to develop. They want you to write features. You're, you're you know, partnering with people. You're teaching. You're doing all kinds of stuff. And suddenly you have way less time than you had as a staff writer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so... You need to teach yourself how to protect your personal time. Mm. And, you ha and you know, if you're sick when you're a staff writer, you can be sick. You can call, the, you know, text the showrunner and the number two and the writer's assistant or email them all and be like, I'm so sorry. I, I'm super nauseous. I can't come in today. If you're running a hybrid room or I think, quite frankly, every room should make it so now that if you're, you can log in, they can put a laptop in the room and you can still hear everything that's going on. Mm -hmm. 
But you coming in the room when you're sick, first of all, most showrunners are germaphobes anyway. They were germaphobes <laughs> long before COVID. So they're not yeah. going to want you to come in sick anyway. Yeah. But it takes the stress off of it, right? That like, oh, God, I missed a day in the room. I'm going to get fired. No, you're going to log in. You're going to listen to everything. If you have something to contribute, you can, you know, unmute yourself. Your camera can be off. It's all fine. Mm. But it's hard to believe that in the beginning. Yeah. And so I really just encourage people to like be clear on what is important to you because that's yeah. the stuff you got to protect. Yeah. So it, I mean, it is a balance because that doesn't negate the thing about arriving early and leaving late and, um, and that kind of thing. But at the same time, even from early on, I think one of the most damaging things you can do is say, I will start that later. Um, and I think you need to have that balance right from the beginning. Yeah. It's really important because I think, you know, as many writers as you might meet, they all have different ways in which they handle their life, right? I have plenty of friends who are married and have kids and are full-time writers. I don't know how they do it, but God love them. I knew that wasn't a juggling act I wanted to do. So I decided to put all my energy into my career and my friendships and all that stuff. That's a choice though. And so mm -hmm. if if getting married and having kids is important to you, you have to make time to pursue that. And it's real easy to lose yourself for five years in this career mm -hmm. and suddenly be like, oh, I meant, to, I meant to have kids. Oh no, what am I gonna do? So mm -hmm. you just need to like be very aware of, okay, I want this career. This is absolutely what I want, but this is what I'm not willing to sacrifice to get it. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Um, we will start to wrap things up here. Um, but one of the things I, I did want to mention, as if all that stuff wasn't enough, um, you've also got sample script pages uh, for the story area, for outlining, um, for the synopsis, a glossary of lingo that you'll need to know, which is very important. And you, uh, there aren't actually a ton of places you can find that lingo. Um, so lots of great resources in in the book. Uh, any closing thoughts before we go um advice to like one piece of advice that you could give people who are maybe coming into the staff uh for the first time or want to be on a writing staff or just want to break into tv in general um you know honestly it's it's gonna feel so cliched but it's so true like you just have to keep at it you really do i mean it took me 10 solid years of real effort like the first couple of years when I was like, I'm going to be a TV writer, like don't really count. But like from when I got very serious about writing specs and entering contests and, and applying for fellowships, 10 years. Hmm. And I have several friends that it took right around the same amount of time. And it's it's all building your muscles and it's all getting you ready so that when you do get in that first room and you do feel like you can't breathe because the race cars are spinning around, you're like, hmm. I did the work. I did the work. I'm going to figure it out. Like it just, it's, there are people for whom it comes easy. I do not know many of those people. Almost mm. every person I am friends with who is a working writer worked really hard for a really long time to get there. So mm. I know it gets frustrating and I know like I was very much like I'm not applying for another fellowship. I'm done. <laughs> and then I applied for one more and that was the one. Yeah. So you just never know. 
You just yeah. never know. But if it's if it's what you want to do and you're going to write even if no one ever pays you, then keep writing. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very cool. And also by <laughs> the Writer's Room Survival Guide. I, you know, and, and I really, really honestly think um, this will be something that you read once and then you refer back to again and again and again and again throughout your career. Um, it's a reference book that I think you're going to love to have on your shelf. And so check the show notes for a link to buy it. And it will be available for purchase as of today, um, October 4th. Um, so yeah. And uh, make sure to follow Nicole on Twitter and Instagram, both Nicole cookies, really easy to remember. Um, and you are, I appreciate that you're very active on Twitter. Um, I am probably and... more than I should be, but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And in which, where, where is the best place for people to reach out to you? It's probably honestly on, on Twitter. Um, mm -hmm. it's probably, you know, the, the place I'm most responsive to that kind of thing. So, yeah. So at Nicole with an E cookies yeah. and uh, make sure to follow. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us today. And honestly, I know it took a lot of work to write this book and I think that work is going to pay off for a lot of different people and make this industry a better industry. Um, if, so much. And, I appreciate well, that. honestly, in, and everybody who reads this book will eventually be, well, not everybody will be, but there'll be a lot of people who read this book who will end up being the number two, end up being the showrunner, and hopefully will take into account the things that you've mentioned in it. Thank you, I hope so too. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Nicole. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for the episode. You can find us on the web at tvwriterpodcast.com or at scriptmag.com. The video version of this podcast is available at iTunes, Podbean, or YouTube. The audio-only version is available at iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, or Pandora. You can find me on Instagram at at tvwriterpodcast. Follow me on Twitter at Gray Jones is my handle. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.